This is a strange journey. Where we're headed is not yet clear. For the community to carry on, change is the new normal and being adaptive is the only strategy that works. Those words, true today, could have been written about the communities described in the Acts of the Apostles, which tells the story of a people of faith struggling to keep up with the Holy Spirit in rapidly changing and unsettled times. This fall, we pastors of Second Presbyterian Church are offering a sermon series on Acts called Catching Up with the Spirit. We invite you to join us during this season of change as we seek guidance from the text to follow God's lead, trusting God continues to work in, through, and alongside God's people to bring healing and wholeness to everyone. Join us as we seek to catch up with the Spirit. Let us join our hearts in prayer. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may your spirit rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. And may this sacrament be for us a reminder of your claim and grace upon our lives. Amen. I cannot tell you how good it is to hear the sounds of a baby in our church sanctuary. It is a strange thing to preach to a virtually empty room most Sundays at this 11 o'clock hour, and it's wonderful to have them here with us and to hear the sounds of a child, because the body of Christ is full of believers from every age, from our youngest to our oldest. So thank you for bringing Grove to us this morning. Let us turn now to our scripture reading from the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 1 through 23. Hear these words for the church today. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened up, and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that was profane or unclean. The voice said to him again, a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. While Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and standing by the gate. 
They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house, and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like many parents in the pandemic, I have not had much free time. But somehow, I have made the time to watch the beautifully told Netflix miniseries, Unorthodox. It is based on Deborah Feldman's memoir by the same name. The story opens with the protagonist, Esty, a 19-year-old bride in an unhappy arranged marriage, looking out at the streetscapes of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The thin air of wire that surrounds her Satmar Hasidic community hems her in. One day with cash and a few papers stashed in her waistband, she breaks that barrier and travels alone to Berlin, looking for her mother, who herself fled the Satmars and her alcoholic husband when Esty was a child. Without giving too much away, in Berlin, Esty is confronted with a world so different from her home. She grew up in an insular community steeped in religious ritual and strict moral codes. In Berlin, she meets other young adults, men and women, who live as equals, not bound by their gender or ethnic identities. Watching the four episodes in this short series is like watching a conversion unfold. It doesn't happen all at once, but it is a slow, gradual awakening. Growing up in South Carolina, it wasn't unusual for a fellow high school student to ask the age-old Bible Belt question, when were you saved? Although I'd never seen the literal light, I guess there must have been a lot of Damascus Road experiences happening in my hometown. Author Anne Lamott describes her conversion experience as sensing the presence of Jesus. She writes, likening that presence to a little cat at her heels. Everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my houseboat door whenever I entered or left. And one week later, I went back to church. And this time I stayed for the sermon, which I thought was just so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials, but the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape it. It was as if the people were singing between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling, and it washed over me. After going to church, I raced home and felt the little cat running at my heels, and I opened the door to my houseboat, and I stood there a minute, and I hung my head, and I said, Fudge it. I quit. 
I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, All right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. In Anne Lamott's account, there is drama, music, resistance, community, tears, even cussing. Her description is quite illustrative. I've never had a good answer for the question, when were you saved, beyond the pat reformed response about 2,000 years ago. But conversion is a big theme in Acts. It is the focus of our text for today. It takes shape in the room of a soldier and on the rooftop of a tanner. Luke is describing in Acts 10 the door through which we Gentiles enter in. This chapter is the pivot, the turn that makes everything before it and after it intelligible and open for me and for you. So for the first time, we Gentiles fully appear. Cornelius is us, but not typically so. He is a man of war, bound to the Roman state. He is a master, an owner of slaves. He is a ruler, a leader of men. He is what so many men and women in this world aspire to be, a strong, self-sufficient individual. Cornelius is, for many of us, an aspiration. He is also an anomaly, for he is a God-fearer. He stands at the door of Israel and knocks, praying the prayers of God's people as though he is one of them, following the gestures and rituals of worship, embodying the hopes of God's children without them even knowing it. In this way, he is a living contradiction. He is in the old earthly order, but his actions are preparing for the new kingdom. Cornelius doesn't know it yet, but God knows him by name. He will learn what all of us who come after him have discovered that God hears and answers prayers. God pays attention to Cornelius, and God pays attention to us. In our text, God sends an angel to Cornelius, so then Cornelius sends two slaves and a soldier to Peter. This powerful, self-sufficient man must search for and find Peter. From a soldier's bidding to a rooftop vision, our scene shifts. Peter became very hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now, God comes. The timing is perfect. God comes to Peter in prayer, Israel's first and deepest gesture. And God comes to Peter in the moment of hunger, a being's deepest truth. Prayer and hunger, hunger and prayer, these would be the pillars on which God will build the future of the creature. These are the pillars on which God will constitute a new order. Hunger and prayer go together, completing each other in God. And in the moments that follow, the divine word comes to a hungry creature. In our second vision, in only 11 verses, the revolution descends on a sheet. Its four corners stretch beyond what Peter can imagine. In his hunger, Peter beholds his horror. 
The sheet contains animals clean and unclean, appropriate and inappropriate, appealing and repulsive altogether. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. It is hard for us to truly understand the revelation this scene was for Peter. For so many of us, animals are the most, for the most part, natural resources, utility, and sites of consumption. There was, however, a time that revealed a different way of viewing animals, and there are people still that hold on to these old ways. The old way of viewing animals bound them as extensions of family, faith, memory, and body. For many ancient peoples, their elders would have to seek permission from the animals to eat them. And with the eating, something would have to be returned to the earth to balance what was taken. To eat the animals that were associated with the people was to move into their space of living. A sheet of animals descending from heaven, given with permission to eat, symbolized God placing Peter in the midst of the world and saying to him, Join it. Join them. Peter is not so much being asked to take and consume these creatures, but rather to become a part of something that he did not imagine him a part of before. This new eating symbolizes a new reality. Peter heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. Bless poor Peter's heart. He is a rule follower, after all. He is a conscientious Jew, so of course his natural response was an unequivocal no. But if we consider Peter's no, we remember all the times it came before. When Jesus tried to wash his feet, Peter replied, No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. When Jesus explained that he must suffer many things, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him and said, No, this shall never happen to you. And then on that Good Friday night, three times Peter denies knowing Jesus. No, I do not know this man. Each and every time Peter says no, God gives the disciple a chance to change. Throughout the New Testament, it's like we are seeing Peter's conversion and reconversion over and over again. God is continually revealing more of God's self and God's plan, and with each revelation comes a revolution, a change, an opening. God's kingdom is growing wider and wider. Kathleen Norris writes that for her, conversion is a progression, not an event. She writes, conversion is a process. It's not a goal. It's not a product we consume. It is a bodily process, not only an emotional or intellectual one. The very cells in our body are busy changing, renewing themselves every few days. Yet we remain recognizably ourselves. This is the way conversion works. With God's work, Peter is slowly being remade, our understanding of the church is being reshaped cell by cell, day by day. There at Simon's door is a future God desires. God tells Peter to go to the three men Cornelius had sent to find him. 
Don't analyze, critique, or think too long and hard, Peter. Just go with these men because I have sent them. There at the door, Peter learns of another divine visitation, this one to a Gentile. The world, as Peter knows it, is turning over, and Peter turns with it. He invites the two slaves and one soldier into Simon the Tanner's house, and together they rest and eat and talk. In unorthodox, young Esty had never left New York in her life. Perhaps the most multicultural and pluralistic city in the world, and she had only rarely ventured beyond the thin air of wire that encircled her neighborhood. The boundaries that kept her separated from the outside world weren't necessarily physical, but cultural, religious, ethnic, and educational. I've been thinking a lot lately about those things that divide us that aren't necessarily physical. We are 16 days out from an election that feels existential. As a nation, we are divided, anguished, bruised, and broken. Some of us have lost our ability to extend grace or generosity to people whose views are different from our own. Some of us have become so jaded, hardened, and cynical. I have Christian friends and family members who hold radically different views than I do. Yet I owe them every bit of love, respect, and faithfulness I can muster. The posture I feel we have all forgotten that is necessary for the Christian life is quite simply humility. You can spend your whole life trying to get it right like Peter and still get it wrong time and time again. You can spend your whole life in devotion to the mighty powers of this world like Cornelius and have revealed to you that what is right was this whole other way all along. In the verses that follow our passage, Peter will listen and hear the words of God in new and unanticipated places. Listening. This will be the engine for the new world order. Listening for the word of God and others who are not imagined with God, not imagined involved with God, but whom God has sought out and bringing near to the divine life and to our lives. Peter will later speak that he should no longer call anyone unholy or unclean and that God shows no partiality. In her passage, Peter is on the threshold of a revelation. That revelation is not of God's wider palette for people, but that Peter's range of whom to love must expand until it stretches beyond his own limits into God's life. The Holy Spirit has come. Your life is bound up in mine, in mine, in yours. Because the waters of baptism join us to one another, whether we agree or disagree, God has told us, O oh mortals, what is good. May we answer God with each word and action that escapes us. Mm-hmm.
Second Presbyterian, Finding Direction by Following Jesus.